this morning and you don't have a Bible, uh, there are men coming up the aisles right now and they do have Bibles and just get their attention in some way and they'll get a Bible into your hands. And that way you can listen to the word this morning, but also follow along with your own eyes, which is always uh, far better. And uh, so take advantage of that opportunity. Sunday mornings, looking at the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order. And we come now into what is really the you know, pinnacle of his life and ministry as we're so near the cross and his resurrection. Mark's Gospel, chapter 14, verse 53. And they led Jesus away to the high priest, and with him were assembled the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. But Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he sat with the servants, and he warmed himself at the fire. And then in verse 66, And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you're saying. And he went out on the porch, and a rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him again and began to say to those who stood by, This is one of them. And he denied it again. And a little later, those who stood by said to Peter, Surely you're one of them, for you are a Galilean. Your speech or your accent shows it. And he began then to curse and swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And the second time the rooster crowed. And then Peter called to mind what Jesus had said to him before the rooster crows twice. You will deny me three times. And when he thought about it, he wept. Let's pray together. Father, we love your word. And we love how complete it is. We love the broad diversity of subjects that it addresses. And we acknowledge every single one of them necessary. We love all of the areas of our life that you're interested in, in wanting to fashion, Lord, for your glory. And we want the entirety of our life to exist and to be used for your glory. And we pray that by your Holy Spirit, who is so active in this room right now, that you would speak to us individually and personally from your word, Lord, now. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. On the morning of Jesus' crucifixion, the apostle Peter denied him three times. And it had to have been certainly to know anything about Peter at all in the scriptures and to know the Lord ourselves. It had to be one of the bitterest experiences of his entire life, a very, very deep valley in his spiritual life. Now, denying the Lord is a thoroughly miserable experience. And thus, as the disciples were with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was arrested, they scattered off in all different directions in order to kind of save their skin. And it's fascinating to me that the Holy Spirit keeps his video camera right on the Apostle Peter through the whole experience because there's something that he wants us to learn from this bitter experience in Peter's life. And obviously it must mean that we are all ourselves tempted in the same way to fail uh, just as he did. And I suspect there are very few Christians in the world today who cannot sympathize or relate uh, to Peter uh, on some level related to this failure in his life. Peter's denial of Jesus didn't surprise Jesus. And, and our denial of Jesus doesn't surprise him either. But it doesn't make it right. And that's one of the things that the passage teaches. It's one thing to say, all right, my life never surprises the Lord. He knows ahead of time what I'm going to do, what I'm going to say, what I'm not going to do, and what I'm not going to, to say. But that his foreknowledge of that is never an indication of the fact that that makes it right. 
Only hours earlier, Jesus had predicted that Peter would deny him. And Peter responded to this prediction of his denial. And he said to Jesus, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Jesus said, assuredly, I say to you that this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. It is absolutely inconceivable to him that he could ever deny Jesus under any circumstances, even if they were torturing him and putting him to death. It, in his mind, there was no way anyone could ever get him to deny the Lord. And so he forcefully denied the prediction of his denial. And he meant it. When he said, he didn't say, oh, this might end up in the Bible. I think I'll say something that will make me look good. When he said, I'll never deny you, they can kill me and I'll never deny you. He meant every word of it. So he is supremely confident that Jesus is wrong and that this is an impossibility as it relates to him. And so now here he is, he's forewarned with the knowledge. To be forewarned is to be forearmed. Now I'm really not going to deny you because you've told me that that's something that I'm going to be tempted to do. And so he was especially determined not to do it. Now, what was Peter's denial? Very simply, he denied three times that he was a disciple of Jesus, that he was a follower of Jesus. He even went a bit further and he denied knowing Jesus at all. In Luke's gospel, in his account, he denies to the woman saying, woman, I do not know him. Wow. Think about Peter and his love for the Lord. And for him to say that, I don't understand your question. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know him. And then I always think about it in verse 71 and how Peter must have thought back on it. He refers to Jesus as this man. I do not know this man of whom you speak. And at the very time that Jesus is declaring himself to be the Christ, the son of the living God, enduring a cruel and relentless beating on the other side of the wall from where Peter is, all for refusing to deny who he is. Jesus couldn't deny himself. I'm the Christ. I'm the son of the living God, taking the beating forward and ultimately to die on the cross for that great truth a little bit later in the morning. And despite being forewarned, just a wall's distance away, three times Peter denies being one of Jesus's followers. Following Jesus's arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, the eleven disciples scattered in all directions. Personal safety. And it seems that Peter and probably John, those two disciples, got outside of kind of the reach of the arresting uh, religious police force that was there arresting Jesus. And when they felt that they were in no immediate danger, they began to follow the crowd where that crowd was taking Jesus. And so they followed as Jesus was taken to Annas' house first, as we saw last week, and then taken to the high priest's house, Caiaphas. And then Peter and John make their way into the courtyard that was a part of Caiaphas's uh, house. And as he's in that in that courtyard, again, right on the other side of the wall, uh, inside, they're trying Jesus, they're blaspheming and they're they're beating Jesus. And so Peter, he then sits down in the midst of the servants and the employees of, of Caiaphas, they're gathered around a fire. It's uh, springtime and uh, the time of the Passover probably is very early in the morning, sunrise. It's cold. And so they light a fire for each one to gather around. And, and Peter gathers around that fire. And that crowd is probably a good sized crowd there. Most of them involved in Jesus's arrest in the garden uh, just minutes and hours earlier. His first denials recorded in verses 6 and 7 where, 
One of the servant girls of the high priest sees Peter and then declares in front of everyone, you also were with Jesus of Nazareth. And Peter's response there is, I don't know or understand what you're saying. He pretends not to understand the girl's question. Again, just hours before Peter had declared before Jesus and all the other disciples, even if they're all made to stumble, I will not be made to stumble. Though, even though if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. It's amazing to look at this incredible self-confidence of Peter, this boasting of Peter, the self-assurance, and all of it just laid waste by one little question, by one young servant girl. All of that determination that he had wilts up and becomes nothing at the question of a young woman. I'm not berating him. I would never berate him in these circumstances. I only observe it and I only speak it with some force because I recognize the power of it. I recognize the powerlessness of self-assurance in that kind of environment, determination, confidence that I'm going to stand in this place and then to have something so relatively small come up against my best efforts and then to watch me curl up and fail in that same situation. And Peter denies knowing the Lord and clearly for his safety. Then the second denial in verses 69 through 70. Later, the same young girl and, and in concert with another servant girl were told in Matthew and Luke. And they declare to the crowd concerning Peter, this is one of them. Again, Peter denies it. And then his third denial in verses 70 and 71. And it appeared that the men, these servants and officers, had, had gone to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. They now speak up and they said, surely you're one of them, for you're a Galilean and your speech shows it. And so Peter is not only warming himself at the fire of these uh, men and women, but he is evidently entering into casual conversation with them. Uh, so that they are able to hear him speak and determine that he is from Galilee. Now, we don't have an accent in California, at least if you're not from California. Nobody thinks they have an accent from where you come from. But when I meet somebody from the South, you know, some from someone from Georgia or someone from Alabama, I mean, a, a Southern accent is a very strong accent. You realize immediately they're not from around here and you're able to pinpoint geographically the general area that they come from. Well, that's the way it was with a Galilean accent in those days. So up in the north of Israel, they would pronounce certain words a certain way and sentence structure and all that was different from how they spoke down in the south. And so they recognized that here we've got a guy around this fire. And he's not one of Caiaphas's men, which would typically be highly educated in, in Judaism and the educational systems of the South and all. We've got someone who, who's here from Galilee, and Jesus' ministry was predominantly up in the area of Galilee. Why in the world is this guy gathered around this fire except for the fact that he's one of them? And Peter responds. I mean, he's really feeling cornered at this point. And he responds... By swearing, we're told in verse 71, and cursing and declaring, I do not know this man of whom you speak. It's not that he's using profanities or, 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 or swearing coarsely. Basically, what he, he is doing here is he is putting himself under oath. He is saying, essentially, may God curse me. May he curse me if I am not telling you the truth. And that's how desperate he was to get them to believe his denial of Christ. Now, that was Peter's way of denying Christ. But there are many other ways of denying that we are one of Jesus' disciples as well. It can occur, just like has happened with Peter here, where someone comes up and asks us 
pointedly whether we are a Christian or whether we are a follower of the Lord. And uh, we deny that to their question. Sometimes it occurs when we're in a group of non-Christians, as Peter was, uh, maybe at work or at school or in a family gathering. And uh, out of nowhere, suddenly Christ and Christianity are being abused, just as Christ was. And then out of cowardice, we just remain silent and we decide, I'm going to hide the fact that I'm a Christian in this conversation. Sometimes it occurs when the Holy Spirit prompts us to share the gospel with somebody and we fail to heed that very, very unmistakable prompting that he gives us because we're concerned about what they're going to think of us or what others may think of us as we share the gospel there at that bus stop or on a plane or in an airport or at work or wherever it might be. I think it's important to understand that it wasn't Peter's faith that failed here, but his courage. It was his courage that failed. Jesus said, Peter never in the course of this whole series of denials, he never doubted that Jesus was the Messiah. He never doubted the fact that he was the son of God. He never doubted any of the teachings of the Bible as a part of this denial. I mean, he held on to all of, of those things. His faith, is, his faith isn't shaken at all. It's not moved at all. It, it, and the reason it isn't is because Jesus had spoken to Peter and said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith would not fail. And when you've returned, strengthen the brethren out of your failure and out of this experience. His faith wasn't in jeopardy in any way here. He wasn't doubting anything. He still believed in Jesus. He still trusted in Jesus, but he had failed in his witness. And the aftermath of it is recorded there in, in verse 72 and recorded even more strongly in Matthew chapter 26, where we're told that following this denial, as the cock crows or the rooster crowed, Peter was reminded of what Jesus had said to him. And then he realized that he had denied Christ three times. And then we're told that he went out and he wept bitterly. The Holy Spirit wants us to know that that's what he did following his denials. Not only did he go out and weep, but the Holy Spirit wants us to know that he went out and he wept bitterly. And the word wept bitterly, it's two words in the English, but it's just one word in the Greek in the original language. And it means it speaks of a weeping, a wailing, not only the shedding of tears, but it includes every external expression of grief. He breaks down here. He begins to cry in a way that his face is contorted over the pain that he's feeling over what he's just done. And his shoulders, his body beginning to be wrapped now under the weight of the sobbing here. He is absolutely devastated that he has done something that he previously thought he was incapable of. And he was shattered at the weakness of his flesh. And I'll tell you, it's a miserable place to be. I think it's fascinating also to realize, and if we don't realize it, we won't pull the lesson of the passage out to impact our lives. I think it's fascinating to realize that Peter's denial of Jesus didn't occur out of some lack of love for Peter, for Jesus. Peter loved the Lord. It didn't occur because he lacked good teaching of the Bible. For three and a half years, he had listened to Jesus teach in synagogues up and down the north and the south and the east and the west of the entire nation of Israel. He'd heard all of his teachings there in the region of the temple in Jerusalem. Peter had a tremendous Knowledge of the scriptures and yet denied the Lord. 
He didn't deny Jesus because he had any doubts about Jesus's power or any doubts about who Jesus really was. He'd been an eyewitness to three and a half years of Jesus's miraculous power. His whole life was a testimony to the power of God. On the Sea of Galilee, as the storm comes up and he's sinking, as he walks momentarily upon the water and he's sinking about to drown and he cries out to the Lord, help me. And Jesus reaches down his hand and pulls him up out of the water. Peter had received revelation right from the Father concerning Jesus. He knew who Jesus was, wasn't doubting it at the moment at all. Jesus said, who who do men say that I am at Caesarea Philippi? And they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist, Jeremiah, the other prophet, Elijah. This is the rumors of who you are. Who do you say that I am? And Peter jumps up and he speaks for all of them. And he said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus said, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. But my father has revealed this to you. And he believed all of that and more about Christ. And his denial did not occur because he lacked a deep personal relationship with Jesus. He had one of those. Even among the twelve disciples, twelve apostles, there were three that constituted an inner circle. Peter, James, and John taken up on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus Taken with Jesus alone at other times, but on the Mount of Transfiguration to see Jesus transfigured into his eternal glory. Peter knew Jesus, knew him well, had a close personal relationship with him. And this denial did not occur because he lacked commitment to Jesus or because he lacked determination. Again, out of his mouth, Peter said, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And not only were his words the picture of commitment, even his actions, as Jesus is arrested there in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's the one that pulls out the sword and begins flailing at anybody that he can hit with it. And he's ready to go down to the death with Jesus at that particular moment, fully determined, fully committed to live for Christ and to die for Christ. And yet for all of that, and that is a lot, he failed. He denied Christ, which tells us that a person can possess all of those wonderful things, all of those priceless things. And still end up living a life of denying Christ and a life of crying bitter tears over that denial. Perhaps some of us look at this chapter in Peter's life this morning. We say to ourselves, I understand everything about his denial. I know every emotion he was feeling. In that courtyard, what you have described isn't anything new to me. That is my life. That is my nightmare. And here I am like Peter. I love the Lord like Peter. I'm filled with the greatest of intentions. But like Peter, it always ends up going sideways and it ends up being bitter tears. And is there any hope at all for me? Again, Peter didn't lack A deep love for Jesus. He didn't lack a long history with Jesus. A tremendous knowledge of the Lord. A deep personal relationship with the Lord. A commitment to Christ. A determination to be faithful to Him. He had all of that. And you can have all of that and deny Him. And live a life of denial. He had all of that and more. But what he did lack was power. A Christian can possess all of those other wonderful things, necessary things, but without the supernatural empowering of the Holy Spirit in our lives as Christians, our lives will be one of constant failure. No matter how determined we are, no matter how committed 
we are. And there is no amount of determination or self-confidence that can make up for the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Fifty days following this denial of Jesus by Peter. Peter would stand up on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. And in the same Jerusalem, boldly preach the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ. Preach the first sermon of the church age. And when you see Peter on the day of Pentecost, he's unrecognizable to us from the one that is before us in the scriptures here. He's a completely different man. He is a bold man standing up now in the midst, not of a small group of people in a courtyard in the uh, of Caiaphas, the high priest. He now stands up in the midst of thousands in the city of Jerusalem. And he confronts not only their wrong conclusions about the work of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, but he confronts them with their very own sin and the part that they played in the death and crucifixion of Christ. It's a very pointed sermon that he preaches on that day. The crowd is huge. Hundreds of thousands are in the city. No denial this time. No denial of knowing him. Men and brethren, men of Judea rather, and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. And on he goes into that sermon. No concern now for pleasing men. No concern for his health or safety or his Welfare, no concern to fit in with a wicked and an adulterous generation. And once this man who was silenced by a young maiden, now bold before an entire city. And when his message is ended, 3,000 people come to know the Lord and put their faith, their personal faith in Jesus Christ themselves. And Peter would never be the same again for the rest of his life. What produced that change? What he received on the day of Pentecost, what Jesus promised, the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus speaking. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. For what purpose? And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth, and in Caiaphas' courtyard, and at Davis High School, and at O'Brien Market, and sitting in the bleachers of your child or your grandchildren's soccer game, or at Memorial Hospital, or at a family gathering. The power to stand for Christ. The power to live for Christ, the power to speak for Christ, which is the harder thing. In any environment that we find ourselves in the whole wide world. In the almost infinite, you think in your mind, the almost infinite number of environments and variables on that environment of locations and people and combinations of people and all these things, even if all of them were to come together to silence us in that environment, here is a power that is given by the Holy Spirit that will give us the ability to not only not deny Christ in the environment, but then to speak for God and to even call people to a faith in Christ in that same environment. Are you like Peter before the baptism with the Holy Spirit? You love the Lord. Nobody doubts that you love the Lord. One environment. You have your sword out and you're ready to take on the whole world for him, ready to die for him. And then just that crazy way that life is. 
An hour later, you find yourself in a different environment and you wilt in the face of a comparative servant girl asking whether you're a Christian. And it leaves you ashamed and it leaves you frustrated concerning your walk with Christ. Is there any hope? Yes, there is. And the hope is the same hope that Peter had. God gave this power of the baptism with the Holy Spirit to Peter. And he will give that same baptism with the Holy Spirit to us if we'll just ask for it. Jesus said concerning the Holy Spirit, he said, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, you take the best parent in this room, the best of us as parents, the most, just the best of us as parents are evil by comparison to the heart of God toward us as his children. And Jesus said, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, and we do. He said, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who huff and puff and blow the house down? Or take a boat to Greece and climb the highest mountains in search for the golden fleece and the golden dragon's teeth that you put in the ground and the skeleton army comes up. That's a lot easier than that. How much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And this dynamic of the Holy Spirit is there for the Asking. And a person can just say to God this morning, Lord, I know all about Peter before the day of Pentecost. I live, I breathe, I sense, I am one with this man. But I don't know the Peter on the other side of the day of Pentecost. I don't understand him. I don't know what he's thinking. I don't know what he's feeling. It's all foreign to me. It's not my experience. How can that now become my experience? The baptism with the Holy Spirit. And where a Christian already has the Holy Spirit inside of us by virtue of being born again, Jesus said this baptism with the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit coming upon our lives so that he overflows our lives impacting the people and the environments that we find ourselves in. So we come to God this morning if we say, this is the frustration of my life. And I want to know Peter after Pentecost. And so you ask and you say, would you baptize me with this Holy Spirit? I want your Holy Spirit not only in me, but upon me and overflowing my life. And no one, no child of God who asks that of the Father is ever denied that. The Father is happy to give that to us. It's all there for the asking. And it's all there for the receiving. I think that the, one of the prevailing perceptions of Christianity today, especially among those that aren't Christians yet, but it's it's not just limited to them. Is that Christianity is a light, this life where God has given us this book that most of you have on your lap right now, the Bible. And it's filled with instruction and it's filled with commandments. And so he gives us this book. This is the way to live. We acknowledge that this is the way to live. And so we are now to roll up our own sleeves and in our own self our own determination and our own self-effort. We are to try in our own strength to live out the life that's described here in this book. <laughs> and when a person tries to do that, I don't need to tell you. It's always crash and burn. It's always failure. It's always bitter tears. I remember early in my Christian life, born again on, my, on the way to heaven, absolutely. No doubt about it. But lacking this power in my life, not even know that, knowing that it existed. And my life was one of such continual defeat and frustration. I remember, and I've spoken of it in the past, saying to the Lord, Lord, somewhere along the way here in, in this life with you, I'm going to need to start enjoying this or I'm not going to make it. And I meant it. I wasn't giving him an ultimatum. 
I was just talking out loud with my friend. Then I came to find out about the baptism with the Holy Spirit and then to ask for that baptism of the Holy Spirit, to receive that, to receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and then to ask to be refilled with the Holy Spirit. As Paul said to the Ephesians, be being filled with the Holy Spirit as we have need. We walk out of an environment and we say, I didn't deny the Lord in that environment, but I was nothing close to what I wanted to be and I know God wanted me to be. Lord, would you freshly fill me with your Holy Spirit? There was way too much Damien Kyle coming out in that room and not enough of you. So I know I need to be refilled by you and he'll refill us with his Holy Spirit and he'll love to do it. The Holy Spirit gives us not just the will to do, the desire to do of God's good pleasure, But the Holy Spirit gives us the power to then do that. If you sit here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, you have never put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. You need to know that that's what God is calling you to. He's calling you to trust personally in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, to turn your life over to God. God will come into your life by the Holy Spirit. and You're going to begin a personal relationship with God. But what he is calling you to is not a life of frustration where it's like, okay, I'm on my way to heaven. And now he's given me this book to mock me and to uh, torment me as I examine every day the great distance between the standard that it lays, it, it lays out and the standard of my life. That's not what Christianity is. He gives his commandments, all of them wonderful, all of them life giving, all of them freeing, all of them perfect. He describes the life that all of us were made to live ultimately when we're confessed with our sin and the depravity of our flesh, the life that we want to live. And then he gives us the power of the Holy Spirit to want to live it and the ability to live it. That's what Christ is calling you to. And you may come out of growing up in church a little bit as a kiddo or maybe as a youth, maybe as a young adult. You tried this thing, tried to do it in your own strength. It was just bitter tears every single day. You think you're the oddball. This doesn't work for you. But for some crazy reason, you're in this room this morning. Because God wants to let you know you found out half of the story, but you didn't find out the whole story. There is supernatural power that God gives to live this life. The Christian life is a supernatural life. It's intended to be. If it were not supernatural, it could be explained by our own talents and abilities. And then who would get the glory? We would get the glory. God would get no glory from our lives. It's the fact that he allows us to live a life we could not otherwise live. And everybody knows it who knew us before we came to know Christ that recognizes. I don't know what he tapped into. I don't know that I want to tap into it right now, but there's no denying that guy's not the same person. He's not perfect, but he is not the same person. And the Lord gets glory for that change. God wants to save you today, and that's the life that he wants to save you into. I think for those of us who know the Lord, related to this passage, our faith in God can remain absolutely strong. Our faith in God can be completely unshakable but our courage before people can fail and it's easy over time not just over time sometimes right out of the chute without being baptized with the Holy Spirit but it's easy even over time in a Christian life for our relationship with the Lord to internalize It's deeper, it's stronger, it's personal, it's wonderful, but it doesn't move outside of our lives anymore. 
that doesn't express itself in communication anymore with other people. And there's a need for fresh boldness, not only not to deny Christ, but to further then proclaim him and his truth and the truth of God in any environment that he puts us in. Do you know that Jesus's ministry was marked by boldness? You know, sometimes when I think about it, and I think one of the great needs in the body of Christ, certainly in the United States of America today, and certainly within our church as well, is the need for boldness among Christians. But the word boldness has been so mismanaged within Christendom that I even hesitate in a sermon like this to use the word. Because we will, if we've been around the body of Christ for a while, we have allowed somebody other than Christ to define boldness for us. And so we think it always turns into this kind of a person, this kind of a way with people, this kind of a handling of themselves. And we can find that everyone but Christ has fashioned boldness for us. And we've got to throw off all of those definitions of what boldness really is and define it by the Lord. The Lord was bold in his ministry. But he never ceased to look like Christ because he was Christ. John chapter 7, we're told that some of them from Jerusalem said concerning Jesus, Is this not he whom they seek to kill? But look, he speaks boldly and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers now know indeed that this is truly the Christ? I cannot be like Christ in this world without also being bold for the things of God. But what allows us to take the deep Jack LaLanne breath, the mighty Wurlitzer to play, inhale, exhale, is to realize that boldness is going to look like Christ. It doesn't mean that we corner people against their will, against the water cooler at work, and we get them in a headlock and we don't let them loose until we tell them everything we know from the Bible. It doesn't mean that we scream at them with veins coming out of our neck and even out of our forehead. But what it does mean is that when God is being misrepresented, when truth is being misrepresented, when Christ is being misrepresented, when the Bible is being misrepresented, that like Christ, we don't sit silently and let that go on endlessly in our lives, but we will stand up in that environment and we will speak the truth about God in that conversation, whether it's one-on-one or it's a 20-person conversation at a family gathering. And so there is, that's what boldness looks like. It doesn't have to be frenzied. It doesn't have to be crazy. Looks like Christ. It's strong and and it's firm, but it speaks the truth in 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 love and under control in that environment. I think of the Apostle Paul in this realm of boldness. I think very often the tendency is to think of the Apostle Paul. We read the Book of Acts, and here is Paul, bold to the nth degree. Well, that's just Paul. That's the way he was. I mean, he's just naturally like that. Paul just bold like crazy. I wish I was born that way. And we just write the whole thing off as if this was can all be explained by the natural and his life doesn't bring any conviction to my life anymore. His boldness was all supernatural. You see it in his writings. Not only did he pray for his own boldness. In his life and his ministry. But he asked others to pray for him in that regard as well. He wrote to the church at Ephesus and concerning prayer. And he said, and for me, that utterance may be given to me. That I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. He said, would you pray for me, the very thing I pray for myself, that I would continue to be bold and not silenced 
in my little time in human history in declaring the things of God. I think about today, and I think it's even more true of the younger generation and sometimes the churches that are pastored by them. And I'm all for friendship evangelism and all of those kind of things. But everyone's wanting to fit in so much and be liked so much. The boldness is a dirty word. And we get very comfortable in our silence. And in a silence that, if we're to be honest with God, is really nothing short than denial of him over and over and over again. You ever heard the phrase, it goes something like this, share Christ and when you have to use words. I hate that. It sounds so cool and everybody's gathering around that thing today. It is so easy to live for Christ compared to speaking for him and opening our mouths and saying something about him in a particular environment or calling on people to believe in him. You look at what Paul said here and he said that I may open my mouth boldly. None of us would have ever heard the gospel if somebody did not open their mouth boldly for us to hear it. And so this whole idea that the harder thing is to speak for the Lord. And pretty soon, if this thing just keeps going the way that it is, we're going to end up a body of Christ, a bunch of mute Christians with nobody talking and every and hoping that everybody is figuring out the subtlety of our life and why we're different. But that the Bible and the gospel and the word of God was to be preached. It's spoken of through the entire Bible, and not just by those that are in a pulpit like I'm in, but all of us to share the truth. And, And I want you to know that the easiest place on planet Earth for Damien Kyle to be bold in is behind this box. Sometimes people say, I can't believe that you say what you say up there. And people come back that you wouldn't offend, not unnecessarily, but, you know, things they look and they say, this church should be a lot smaller based on what you do up there. Or they'll thank me for being bold. It's a cinch to be bold behind this pulpit compared to speaking up at a family gathering. This may be going to cost me a relationship or with some friends, or in another situation, another situation, you can fill all the blanks in. That's the harder place. And we all face it. The need for boldness. The need to speak. The need to obey the prompting of the Holy Spirit to speak. And you don't have to preach a sermon. you got some people who can talk like greased lightning. And talk and talk and talk and talk and go and go and go. And I'm not talking about myself if you think I'm talking about myself. I'm talking about other people. And then you got other people that you get a sentence out of them in a day. It's like a victory. You want to record it. Here they are. They get a little older. It can be gals too. I'm going to pick on the guys. A little older, you shake their hands at the back door. They're all calloused up, old hands. they got a grip like a vice. They say, they, they, get, they get to a place in life where they, everything's in grunts. One grunt is yes, two grunts is no. The wife's got it all figured out. The kids, the grandkids, the whole thing. Gets up in the morning, he goes out and he just walks among almond trees all day long. Because I don't have I don't have the I don't have the ability to talk. But, you know, when a man or a woman like you, that everyone knows that you're like that. And somebody spouts out and says, well, you know, I believe that everybody ends up in heaven. They just got to do a little more good than bad. 
and you just say something like, I don't believe that because that's not what the Bible teaches. That's like a bomb went off in the room. I'm telling you, they will not go, be able to go to sleep that night until they call you back to find out what you meant by that. It's just the power of it. Just listening to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying somebody's got to go crazy. And, and, and so often when we talk about this kind of thing, boldness and all, I'm not talking about carnality. I'm not talking about earning our stripes in the body of Christ. I'm not talking about alienating people because I do a bunch of nutty things in order to prove that I love Jesus and I've got some kind of boldness. I'm not talking about that kind of thing at all. Just talking about having a love for the world that God has and talking about just listening to the prompting of the Holy Spirit, whether it's to share the gospel at a bus stop or anywhere that it might be, or something gets said in a particular environment and you sit there and you and we know in our hearts, like the Holy Spirit just, let me out, let me out. And for someone just to say, you know, that isn't exactly right. That's not what Christ said. Here's what he did say. And here's why it's wise. And then to back just the promptings of the Holy Spirit. That's that's all. That's all that's needed in order to be bold. I think about the early church. And they were getting threatened, you know, by the the religious leaders and um, uh, and all about to try and silence in their preaching Christ and doing all of these miracles. And here's what they, they did. They got together for prayer. And they said, now, Lord, Acts chapter four, look at their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness, they may speak your word. Give us a boldness that's greater than their, their intimidation. It's an intimidating world. By stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed for this boldness, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word of God with boldness. And clearly God wants us to know that that's a prayer that he answers in our lives. Most denial today, in my observation, takes place in the form of remaining silent. When we know that we should speak. We don't want God to lose his voice in this world. Not at a time when his voice is needed more than ever. And I'd like the worship team to come up right now. And I'm going to ask him to lead us in a couple of worship songs. Just give us some time to think about this.